0: Good to see you all, good to be with you all again for Theology of the Gospels, part four now, um, which is great. So we've kind of done three, I suppose they have all kind of been intro sessions to the Theology of the Gospels over the last few weeks. Um, so we looked at kind of an introduction to studying the Gospels. Um, and I think of, all, of the, all the ones we've looked at, I maybe you'll disagree with me at the end, but of all the ones we've looked at, I want you to remember what we did in the first one the most. Just because we talked in that one about kind of symbols and narratives and how stories work, um, which is going to be very applicable tonight. And then we talked about kind of um, the background theology of the world of the Gospels very briefly. And then last week we did, well, last time we did Jesus's theology and we looked at things like Daniel 7 and so on. So tonight it's exciting because we actually get to jump into a specific book. So we're going to uh, first start with Matthew's uh, Gospel and then we'll go through the other three over the next few weeks. Uh, just to say, if you don't have a handout, then there's there's five on every table. There should be enough for everyone, and i can always going to print off a couple more. So if you are lacking one, then that's just let me know and I'll, I'll get it to you. Um, but yes, so tonight, you'll notice the handout is a little bit thinner, um, and there's not as much stuff on it because... It's not going to be the same as how we've done other ones. I'm hoping this will be a lot more kind of interactive all the way through. If you do have a Bible on you, that's great. If you don't have one, then get it open on your phone, because we'll be in the Bible quite a lot tonight. Um, Now, obviously, I would love to just go through all the way through Matthew, but we definitely don't have the time for that. So, um, well, we'll do something else instead, uh, the best we can do. But um, let me just pray as we start. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you... Uh, would teach us through it, Lord, that as we come and look at this book that tells of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't just be prodding and poking it as though it's just a specimen or an academic textbook. Lord, it is Your holy living Word, and so reveal Yourself to us tonight through it. We pray, Amen. So we're in Matthew, the first of the four, as as we talked about in the first one, not the first written of the four but the first kind of canonical of the four. Um, Now, the first thing I'm just gonna say about Matthew is that Matthew is the most Jewish, if you like, of all the four. Um, Matthew, Mark, and John are all Jews. Luke is the only Gentile. But the one who brings his Jewish culture and heritage and theology the most to bear in the story is Matthew. Matthew's a pretty great gospel, really. We, we all know it from Christmas time. Matthew's the only gospel that has the story of the wise men coming to visit Jesus, for instance. Uh, Matthew's the only gospel that has the Great Commission at the end. Uh, Matthew's the only gospel that has a few of the parables that we're probably familiar with. And Matthew tends to be kind of the default gospel. Whenever, whenever someone wants to kind of quote from a gospel, it's always Matthew. And I really love Matthew. I think Matthew is a brilliant storyteller. Um, and so basically tonight, what we're going to do is First, we're going to look at kind of the structure that Matthew uses to tell his story. And I think that's really important because we have to bear in mind that the way that you set your structure up says a lot about what you're going to fill in. So, if you're building a house and you set the frame up, you can normally at least visualize what's going to fill in. And once you've got the frame, let's say it looks like, oh, it's going to be a three-bedroom house. It's not going to, you're not going to come back in a few months' time and find a skyscraper. The frame always sets what is going to be filled in. So it's actually It's not as though you can just divide structure from content that simply because the way that Matthew structures things tells us something about his content. But we're going to spend the first half looking at some structure, and then the second half, I think it's going to be less than a half, it's going to be quite short, looking at some of the big themes that Matthew has. Now, as I say, these aren't. Um, we can't go through the whole book, so we can't just bring out everything. I, I have to be picky, and I have to be selective, which is unfortunate. But it's also not true that these are things which only appear in Matthew. I'm more just kind of picking out things that Matthew emphasizes more than is necessarily emphasized in the others. So, Matthew. Now, the first thing I want to do is not so much necessarily the structure of Matthew as a whole, but just look at the beginning of Matthew, because Bear in mind, Matthew is a Jew, as I say, and he's, he's writing the most Jewish gospel of all. And as a Jew, he has a very, very high view of the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, because it's the only thing that existed at the time. And so when he comes to the Bible, he comes to it knowing that this is not only God's word, but this is also God's story, by which he knows who he is and the story of his people and where he finds some place in that story. Now, if you start the Bible from the beginning, the first book that you read through is a big book of names and stories introducing you to lots of people through 50 chapters, you go through loads of different families, there's loads of genealogies, but then you come to what that story was introducing, the great defining moment of Israel's history, the Exodus. And we, we talked about this when we talked about the theology of the, the world at the time, the Exodus is this huge thing in the life, of, in, in the mind of Jewish culture. This is kind of the defining moment. So, and the Exodus is this point where God's son is drawn out from this wicked land where they're being um, abused, where there's a wicked ruler, and they are brought to a place where they are called to be God's people, given certain instructions, live a certain way, be the people of God. So I just want us to bear in mind that when you open the book of Matthew, first you interact with a book of beginnings, origins and genealogies, who this Jesus is, and the genealogy of where he came from, You then turn to, and we're going to look at all this in a minute, so do have Matthew open, by the way. You then turn to the story of how this person, how this son of God, goes through an exodus as he's saved out of the land of, quote-unquote, Egypt. Now, we're going to, as I say, stop through all of these points, point by point, in a moment. You find that there's a wicked king in this land who's putting to death all the baby boys to protect his own kingdom. You then see this son of God crossing through the waters and then wandering, wandering around, being tempted in the wilderness, you then read the story as he stands on the mountain and delivers the law, the ethics to define his people. It's like, I know this story. I've heard this story before. And yes, it's the story of the Old Testament. And, and Matthew is on purposely framing his gospel, framing who Jesus is by saying the whole story of the Old Testament is coming to the fore in him. So that's just, this is the bit that I kind of think we're going to spend most of our time on, but I think it's really, really good to do so. So, have Matthew 1 open. Okay, first phrase in the book of Matthew. In the English Bible, it reads something like this. This is the genealogy, or this is the record of the origin of Jesus the Messiah. And it uses this phrase, the, the vivlos geneseos. Now, if, you, if you're a Jew, a Jew at the time, and you're Greek, You'd read the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, the first book of the Bible is called the vivlos geneseos. It's where we get the word Genesis from. Because very early on it says in it, this is the book of beginnings of the heavens and the earth. Aftei vivlos So they would know the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. So when Matthew decides to start his book, this is the book of beginnings, not of the heavens and the earth of the whole story that's going to lead in Israel but of Jesus Christ son of David the son of Abraham one of the problems with an accurate translation like we have where it says the record of the genealogy or the genealogy or the account of the origin is it's it's good English and it's helpful but it misses the point that Matthew's trying to make he's telling a new Genesis and so straight away we're introduced to this person who is uh, the Messiah The son of david the son of abraham he's taking the story way back you want to know something about this jesus let's go way back to the beginning and it i think we have this tendency don't we to just skip over the genealogies they're just a boring list of names i think one of the things we'll see tonight is that actually matthew is really weaving the story just with his genealogy so first thing he's doing is he's rooting this story of this jesus in the history of israel both by putting it in the genealogy of the history of Israel but also by framing it according to the uh, structure of the scriptures the book of beginnings we then come to in chapter 2 um, the story of the exodus out of the land of Egypt I'm just gonna uh, read this because I want us to notice what's going on here in, in um, Matthew chapter 2 after Jesus has grown up a bit uh, it says that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. So this is Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus is going to be killed. Joseph's warned. And so he takes him and his mother, and they go down to Egypt. And Matthew says that this fulfills what the prophet Hosea said in Hosea 11, verse 1. What's the problem with this fulfillment? I mean that as a not rhetorical question, by the way. Do feel free to shout back. Maybe, maybe let's just turn to Hosea and actually take a look at this prophecy, and just tell me what you think. So Hosea eleven, chapter verse one. It says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burnt incense to images. It was you who, I, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. What's the problem with Matthew saying this was fulfilled? <coughs> It's not a prophecy (laughs) Hosea is telling the story of what happened to Israel in the Exodus so that's that's I mean that's a um, that's the big problem Hosea isn't prophesying something that's going to happen so how can Matthew say it came to pass to fulfill the words of the prophet so that that's one problem which we're going to talk about what's the second problem where's Jesus going to Egypt, right? Because it's not until later, though, it says that they decided to leave Egypt. So let's for a moment leave the prophecy question aside and just say that Hosea is saying that he will come out of Egypt. Well, Jesus is on his way into Egypt. So what's going on here? I mean, I'm just, I feel free to to speak up if you do have any uh, answers or solutions before I uh, do all the talking. What would you think? Okay, by the way, do feel free at any point tonight to just stick your hand up and uh, and say anything, even if it's slightly unrelated. But um, I think the point is this, Hosea may not necessarily be prophesying anything specifically but Matthew is saying that the story is itself a prophecy. That what goes on in history speaks of God's purposes just as much as when a prophet says this will come to pass. But not only that, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the true son of God. Yes, Israel was called God's son, but now the true son of God is undergoing this exodus. And so there is a sense in which that story, which you know, history repeats itself, right? What goes around comes around there's this thing that we like to call um, typology. It just means that there's kind of patterns of history. History follows patterns. And now Hosea is, or Matthew is looking at Hosea and is saying, God did it once. He called his son out of that land of captivity out of Egypt, and now he's doing it again. And so that, that story is being fulfilled. It's like he's saying, the ultimate exodus is now happening. But the second thing that Hosea is doing, do you remember in the first part we talked about how if I said something like, um, oh, I have to go now and storm the beaches of Normandy before I go for a day at work or something, you're probably assuming that I'm about to go into a difficult situation I don't want to go into. I'm not actually going to Normandy. I'm not even in the army. But I'm taking what that symbolizes and applying it to my own situation. Matthew isn't saying he went to Egypt, and then when he came home, that's when Hosea fulfilled it. Matthew is doing something far more genius than that. He is saying Israel is Egypt. See, the land that Israel was called out of in the story of Exodus was this wicked land that is against God's, um, God's law and God's plan and does not match God's standards. And God's son develops and is born in this land, and then God says, no more, I'm bringing you to safety to myself. And now that people who are called to be God's uh, priestly people who are called to represent God's power have now degenerated to nothing more than an Egypt themselves, And so Matthew is doing this brilliant and very kind of irenic Uh, Attack. I mean, he does it earlier on in the book as well. When Jesus is born, it says, And Herod was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. What's the people of God's response supposed to be when the Messiah finally comes to them? Hooray! Such good news! Instead, the king of the Jews has been born. That disturbs us. So Matthew is kind of very cleverly calling Bethlehem, Jerusalem, whatever you want to call it, Egypt. So out of Egypt, God calls his son. Now, I've said Hosea here, but I actually mean Matthew. Matthew is using the historical narrative to say something about the setting of this story. So I've had the book of Genesis, now I've seen the Exodus from Egypt. Thirdly, we see that there is a wicked king killing the baby boys to protect his own kingdom. So what does this remind us of, anyone? Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh sees the Israelites multiplying. He thinks this is not good for me or my kingdom. Let's kill all the boys. And now, Herod hears about this king of the Jews. This is not good for me and my kingdom. We're going to track him down. We'll kill every boy in the town if we have to. So, um, if Israel has become an Egypt, what does that make Herod? Pharaoh. So, the reason I'm kind of spending, I want to spend so much time in these intro, introductory chapters is because Matthew is setting the scene for his whole gospel now. The one who controls God's people is Pharaoh. God's people themselves have become Egypt. You want to see God's son? Don't look at the temple or the priesthood. Look at Jesus. Matthew is using all these kind of things to say something about his story. He's setting the frames up on the house. Now, there's something else in this which is just so, so brilliant. If you just look at that prophecy down in verse 17. So, in verse 16, it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, And I would say in former years, kind of if you go back in 50 years of scholarship, it was very um, common for people to just say, Matthew butchered the Old Testament. He didn't know how to handle the Bible, he just did whatever he wants with it. And people really don't get the freedom to say that anymore because we have a much better grasp on kind of Jewish theology and how uh, the Bible was referenced. So actually what we have to say is Matthew's a brilliant exegete and I'm gonna show you why. So why does he bring Jeremiah 31 into this? If we just turn to Jeremiah 31, It's verse 15. Now again, I'll just ask the same question that I asked about Hosea. What's the problem with this fulfillment? Jeremiah 31 says, this is what the Lord says, a voice heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Anyone want to hazard a guess? What's wrong with this fulfillment? Uh, Rama is another name for Bethlehem. Let me ask another question. Is Jeremiah prophesying about a whole load of two year olds being killed in Bethlehem? No. He's not. Let me just give some context. Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy spoken into the context of Israel being in exile. So they're in Babylon as this uh, prophecy is given. They've been carted off. And what Jeremiah is doing in his original context is uh, Bethlehem would have been the last city that the people of Judah would have passed as they went off into Babylon. It would be the outermost um, area that they would have passed as they left from Judea. Right, and, and Bethlehem is where Rachel, Jacob's wife, is buried. So the symbolism that Jeremiah is giving, it's like as they pass her tomb, she's seeing her children, she's seeing her descendants kind of beyond the grave and is weeping as the people who God has brought forth from her are now going off to be destroyed. And so in Jeremiah's context, it's they're going into exile and oh, how our ancestors, uh, our forefathers, if you like, are, are weeping as we go with... with uh, um, not fulfilled the promises which way they were given. But the other thing about Jeremiah is that, notice this, the very next thing it says is, this is what the Lord says, this is in verse 16, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your watch will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. So in Jeremiah, it's saying, yes, this sad travesty is happening as this exile is going through, as the people of God are being carted off. But just like he says in Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord knows the plans he has for his people, plans not to harm but to prosper. So this prophecy is, yes, things are awful, but God has restoration right around the corner. He's bringing good things out of this. So Matthew is kind of taking this prophecy This sad situation, Rachel weeping as her children go, and he's saying, oh, this is also in Bethlehem. You know, how interesting. As this travesty is happening, as these toddlers are being killed, but even in this massacre, even in this sad situation, the Lord knows the plans he has. And as God's son goes down into Egypt, safe, his coming back will secure a salvation unlike any other salvation. So again, just a brilliant use of the Old Testament from Matthew there. So, Let's carry on so we've seen the wicked Pharaoh we've seen what uh, Matthew has to say about Israel we've seen how he's kind of bringing out the story again and then we come to the next part crossing through the waters when does this happen for Israel hmm when they yeah Red Sea when they leave Egypt so Israel it's decisive that the Exodus is now underway when they cross through the Red Sea Right, you're reading that story of the Exodus and it's let my people go, no, I will not. Let my people go, no, I will not. Plagues, 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 plagues. You can go, fine. They get to the Red Sea and this is the point where Pharaoh's army is destroyed. So it's like this is the Exodus has now happened. They've crossed through the waters. So the beginning of their Exodus, the beginning of this journey away from slavery is a crossing through water prior to the testing that they're going to go through. And the ending of the story, if you read into Joshua, is a crossing through the Jordan River as they first step foot onto the Promised Land. And as they cross that Jordan River, as they get into the Promised Land, it's like, right, we know what our job is from here on. We're here to wipe out the Canaanites, to establish God's rule and reign, and to be God's people in this land. So you've got the water crossing before that time of testing, and the water crossing at the end, marking now the commission to bring God's kingdom advance. So when Matthew does this in, in uh, chapter 3, and it has Jesus coming in and crossing through the water, the question is, which one is he referring to? The Red Sea crossing or the Jordan crossing? And I'd say, why not both? Whenever there's kind of multiple symbols at once, I think Matthew is kind of bringing them in and saying, yeah, history repeats itself. And so I'm going to take those repetitions and say that it's all now going on in Jesus. And so the question I have, just talk about this in your groups for two minutes. What could Matthew be saying about Jesus' baptism with these images, or just about baptism more generally? Yours and my baptism, so just two minutes. I just want to make one point. that Matthew's the only gospel that includes the bit about John the Baptist saying to Jesus, baptize you, you should be baptizing me. And I think the reason that Matthew includes this is because it's like Jesus is saying, when Jesus says, Um, what does he say? He says, let this be so, for it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. It's as though Jesus is saying, this story is mine to fulfill. I must fulfill, I must do this to fulfill the story. Jesus is being presented here as the true Israel and see, he must go through all the things that Israel went through, including that water crossing, um, commissioning, and uh, yeah. So then we move straight through crossing the waters. So Israel crossed the Red Sea and then where did they end up? wilderness desert so surprise surprise what happens to Jesus he wanders in the wilderness now um, put your hand up if you celebrate Lent or do something for Lent I assume the half hands up are the people who start something for kind of 20 days and then (laughs) so obviously Lent traditionally has come from a reading of this story of Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days as though Jesus shows us what self-control looks like. He's our model, and therefore, as we, in the run-up to Easter, uh, wanna reflect on that, then we're also gonna do the same thing. We give up something 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what I'd say is, if you wanna do that, fine, but that's not what this passage is about. Jesus is here, again, taking on that role of Israel. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, being tempted to do certain things and giving in every time. Notice that when Jesus is there at war with the devil, Every passage of scripture that he quotes back to say no, I'm not going to do that comes from Deuteronomy when Israel are in the wilderness It's as though Jesus is saying this is my wilderness time and I'm not going to do what Israel did He's going to be the true and faithful Israel Their 40 days is of 40 years. This is 40 days and um, That's not so much of a stretch to say by the way because if you remember in the story of numbers The reason Israel are told to wander in the wilderness for 40 years is because they grumbled for 40 days. So there's that days to years, years to days. Kind of very um, cyclical, if you like. So the point of the story is Jesus is faithful where Israel fails in his own wilderness wandering. Unlike Israel, who are called to leave Egypt, cross through water, and then go in and defeat the enemies, but they're unfaithful and so they have to wander, Jesus crosses the water, goes into the uh, wilderness and defeats decisively well be, or rather I should say begins the decisive defeat of Satan notice that Satan flees there's no other bit in the Bible where Satan flees and now he does I would also say if you read through Exodus there's a bit in Exodus 34 where Moses goes up and wanders by himself in the wilderness by Sinai for 40 days and for 40 nights before he receives the law and it says that he's doing this to spend time with the Lord So again, I would say, is this a reference to Moses on Sinai or Israel in the wilderness? Why not both? You know, Matthew's just weaving this story together and he does what he wants. Cool. Yeah, of course. I think it happened in this sequence but Matthew is particularly drawing it out. So I mean we'll, get, we'll talk about this again later as well but if you take something like the triumphal entry, Mark, Luke, Matthew and John pretty much all give you the same details about what happened when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey. So the chronological um, kind of setting doesn't really make any difference. In any of them, but when you go to Matthew, and as I say, I'm giving spoilers because we're going to talk about this later. Matthew really sets the scene as this is a royal coronation where the others don't. Luke talks about a an argument that's had with the Pharisees. Mark is just very matter of fact. Matthew's like, "Here you go, guys. Here's a coronation scene." So it's not that the details necessarily or the chronology is different. It's rather the fact that like Matthew is using Hosea 11 for instance, the fact that he's going to Jeremiah 31, the fact that he's including that, no, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I think it's more that Matthew has the data and he sees a pattern and he's going, I know this story, so he's shaping it so that we all see the story as well. I think think that's probably more where it's at. Um, But also the chronology isn't perfect because in Matthew, the exodus happens, he goes to Egypt, and then the killing of the young boy starts to happen. Whereas in Exodus, the killing of the young boys happens and then the Exodus happens. But I think nonetheless Matthew's included that story, even if it is the wrong way round, just to make a point that like we have a new Pharaoh here. So... I'm, yeah, I, I think that's a good point to, to raise though, I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily true that we do put such an emphasis on the right ordering, because I mean, don't we love a film where one of the last scenes is shown at the beginning, and we're like, what is going on here? But then as the film goes on, those things that you first saw now start to fill in. So I think in the same way, when you're telling a story, you really do have license to put any structure in as long as all those details get filled in. And I think we love that, and I think they loved it too. But I don't think that's that's what Matthew's necessarily doing here. I think Luke definitely does that, We're not on Luke tonight. Cool. Um, Okay, so Jesus goes from being in the wilderness, fasting like Moses did on Sinai, to then standing on a mountain and giving law. Where have we seen this before? Moses stood on the mount and read the Torah to the people the code of ethics to govern the people of God and now Jesus stands on the mount and preaches the ethics of the kingdom which surpass that of what Moses prescribed it's also worth making a point here this isn't necessarily a structural thing but it often gets read as though Jesus is taking the mosaic law and saying throw that aside let me tell you what's going on and actually a lot of the things that Jesus quotes aren't from the law of Moses. They are rabbinic commentaries on the law of Moses. So when Jesus says, You've heard it said, he's almost always quoting a tradition from the forefathers and then saying, But I say to you and then taking us back to the kind of the heart of the law. So I mean when God said in, in the um, I don't know, sixth commandment not to murder, he wasn't saying, But you can hate people, that's fine. There was always that sense in which, okay, if God doesn't want me to murder, what kind of person does he want me to be? And Jesus isn't necessarily adding something new, he's drawing out what they have been blind to see. You should have known this, it's kind of like how it is. So the point that Matthew's making is, Jesus is the new Moses. So we've seen Jesus in these few stories that Matthew's telling, take on the role of Israel itself, whilst Israel are called Egypt, and their king is called Herod. We see him taking on the role of Moses. Um, we see him taking on the role of no, actually, I think that's it. Yeah, but the, the point is that Jesus is kind of fulfilling that story. Matthew is saying, "Let me just give you a recap of the story by telling you about this Jesus." So that's I think really important for us to um, see uh, in in there. So I I wanted to just kind of go through that to make this point that. When you come to the New Testament, there's no such thing as reading the New Testament apart from the Old. If you're reading Matthew, you are reading the Old Testament, but the Old Testament as it should have been, the fulfilled Old Testament. And we're seeing Jesus, this one person, take on the role of a whole nation. And that's going to come up again later, so I need to stop giving spoilers. So let's just move on and look at some basic structural points for Matthew's Gospel, because we've just looked at the first five chapters, but there's obviously more than that. Now, I. I'm going to go with the most um, agreed upon to kind of the least agreed upon. The most agreed upon thing about Matthew is that he builds his account around five major discourses, five major blocks of Jesus speaking. So this was first proposed by a guy called um, Dr. F. Bacon. um, And his is a bit more uh, expanded than this. So he basically said that um, these five blocks, he says that it always goes narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. And he says that each of those five blocks represent a book of the Pentateuch. So, in Genesis, Sextus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Well, Numbers and Leviticus, the wrong way around. The, the, and generally today, people don't go with that bit, but they do go with that, ah, yes, this is good. There's five discourses, and there's just bits that happen in between them. And these kind of are Matthew's setting. So the Sermon on the Mount, which I imagine we probably know quite well. It's a very influential sermon. The commissioning of the 12 disciples in chapter 10. The parables of the kingdom where Jesus kind of gives one parable. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. Uh, It's like uh, wheat with tares growing amongst it. It's like bad fish and good fish. He just gives bam, 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 loads of parables all in one section. In chapter 18, he talks about managing the church And then lastly, you go into that last bit, the woes in the Olivet Discourse, which we might spend a bit of time talking about later, depending on time, where Jesus denounces Jerusalem, uh, and so on. So, yes. A discourse is like a long speech, basically. Yeah, so that, Whenever Jesus basically stands and gives a long block of, of text, whenever you have loads of red letters all in one go, you refer to that as a discourse, and most discourses have their own kind of title. So that, that classic um, Olivet Discourse, for instance, from the end, is when the disciples say, you know, look at the temple, how amazing it is, and Jesus talks about there'll be false Christs and messiahs and wars and rumors of wars and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, because if you, if you actually read through the Gospels, it's not that often that Jesus just gives a long speech. Most of the time it's a reply here, a reply there. And so the discourses stand out a little bit. But no, that's not a stupid question. Okay. Now, the next thing I want to show, I think is absolutely brilliant. So this guy is a guy called Peter Lightheart. Uh, me, Andy, and Dolas had the privilege of going to a conference with him last year. He is probably one of the most imaginative and creative interpreters of the Bible today. I mean, he is, he is, frankly, brilliant. And he published fairly recently this commentary called Jesus as Israel. It's a two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And his proposal, which I think is too new to have any kind of major consensus, but is basically what we looked at with the first five passages, but on steroids. So you should have on your desk um, a... I've done three per desk, hoping that we can kind of double up and look at it. But he basically comes to Matthew and he says, it looks as though what Matthew is doing is not just doing those first few stories about the Exodus and the passing through the water and so on, but is redoing the whole Old Testament. And now the whole Old Testament is being recapitulated, re through the lens of Jesus. So he makes this point that Jesus goes through this discourse about being the son of David and then immediately turns to wisdom sayings. And it's like this transition from David to Solomon. And he just traces through. I mean, he's done an article on it. If anyone wants to read through where they can see his argument, then I'll, I'll send it your way. But um, I've put the whole thing here just to kind of show it brilliant. But I mean, details that I just wouldn't notice even. Notice that it goes from that long list of names, those long genealogies, to a story about a man called Joseph who dreams these dreams. I know that story. And then the king who kills the king. And we saw some of these things. You've got Jesus as David there on the right side, then Jesus as Solomon. And we're not going to go through all of this now, but the last point, which I do think is absolutely brilliant, is um, the uh, Jewish Old Testament is ordered in a different way to our Bibles. So in our Bible, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. In a Jewish Bible, uh, even the ones you get today, the Tanakh, the last book of the Bible is Chronicles. So the very last thing you read in your Old Testament is the story of King Cyrus commissioning Israel to go and build the temple of God. So Lightheart takes that and he comes to Matthew and he says, the very last story in Matthew is the story of the king who like Cyrus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine and then says, therefore my people, go. And I, I mean, I just think that's brilliant myself. So um, I, I would say I'm... 90% convinced. I'll leave it for yourselves to um, work it out. But you can take those printouts with you. You can have a look. I, I just, If we had time, I'd kind of give us um, a few minutes to think it over. But the the point there is, I think, just consider it. Consider that, that Matthew is actually trying to recapitulate the whole Old Testament, trying to really tell us about Jesus. In other words, when we read the Old Testament, we're not just reading kind of a story of Uh, Morals and uh, this story here and this random collection for Matthew we are reading the story of Jesus in disguise if you like it's like B.B. Warfield used the analogy of when you have a chamber that's dimly lit and you turn the light on it's not that now there's suddenly furniture in it it's now that suddenly you can see what was there the whole time so in the same way Matthew is kind of taking us to the Old Testament and go oh this is all about Jesus brilliant I think brilliant but I'll leave you to uh to to think on that one okay we're just going to speed on Uh, I did want to have a little break but I don't think that's going to happen so let's look at some themes and some symbols and some distinctives for Matthew now the first thing I'd say and I said this in the first session when we talked about each of the gospels distinctives is that for Matthew the kingdom of God Jesus being the Messiah is like the big thing now, I should clarify, Messiah is almost always taken in modern culture to be kind of a religious term. You know, If someone's trying to be the Messiah, it's like they're trying to give themselves for others or something like that. And obviously that comes from a knowledge of who the true Messiah is, but that's not what Messiah means. Messiah means king, basically. When, when you anoint someone as a king in Israel, you, no, sorry, when, you, when someone becomes king, you put oil on their head, so you anoint them and Mashiach is literally just the Hebrew word for anointed one. Same with um, the word Christos, by the way, we get Christ, it just means anointed one. And a funny story, which is why when we find um, very early historians like Josephus talking about Jesus being the Christ, we know almost certainly that it was a, an interpolation because if Josephus was telling Romans about someone being the Christ, they would have just heard it as the oily one. You know, what relevance is that? Whereas for Jews, someone being anointed, someone being the Messiah, they're the king. So Jesus is referred to as the Messiah more than any other gospel. And also just notice this, in Matthew's gospel Jesus spends a lot of time saying the kingdom is at hand or the kingdom is like or the kingdom is coming or the kingdom is there or something like that. When Jesus is announcing the kingdom, he is inseparably announcing that he is the king. You don't have a kingdom without a king, so when Jesus says the kingdom is on the way, he's also saying I'm the king. So he's referred to as the Messiah a lot. He's given the title Son of David nine times in Matthew. There's only three times in Mark and Luke. So obviously the Son of David, the significance of that is that David was this kind of king par excellence, and God gives him this promise that he's going to raise up a son after him who's going to be the perfect king. Now, Maybe it's worth just having a stop here. What do you think of, or what comes to mind, what do you think Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the son of David? How is that going to be heard by his audience? Okay, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, yep. What kind of king is he going to be like? Okay, so they think that he's going to be a king like David because David was a warrior king. I just want to ask you something. Who was the son of David? Solomon. Solomon wasn't a warrior king. Solomon was the temple builder. Solomon was the one who establishes God's palace in the presence of his people. So I think there's a sense in which when we read son of David, we're expecting Jesus to be like David. And, And yeah, of course, there are parallels. He fulfills the whole Old Testament. But I think the main referent is Jesus is the temple building king. Jesus is the king who's come to make God's presence among his people. So he is the son of David. Yeah, I th- I think that's what they're looking for, but Jesus corrects them, I think. So uh, when he talks about Psalm 110 in Matthew 21, I think it is, he talks about the Messiah being the son of David, so it's a title that he's very happy to give to himself. So I think, yeah, they're definitely looking for a warrior king. They're looking for that one who's just going to come in and overthrow Rome and get rid of the Herods and so on. But he's kind of saying, have you forgotten who the son of David is? I I think, at least. And it- It's really interesting because that difference between Solomon and David doesn't get brushed over in the Old Testament when David says I want to build you a temple God says no you're a man of warfare your son is going to build me the temple so it's not as though God kind of goes well one's a warfare king and one's a wisdom king and you know I could have either God actually seems to really put his preference on the um, the the peace and wisdom and the you know because Solomon reaches out to the nations lets the nations know about what Yahweh is doing in Israel I really think that Jesus is making that point about being like Solomon, except the Solomon that didn't go astray, and Jesus didn't go astray, of course, which is why I said the yeah the Solomon that didn't go astray, yeah. <laughs> no, Solomon very much did. Yes, yes. Okay, so the parables focus on that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the entry on a donkey. The references that so Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9 and he talks about the king entering he um, recalls that the people say blessed is the son of David again a kingly messianic reference the other Gospels don't include that so Matthew is really trying to get us to see this as a kingly scene okay we have uh, I'll very quickly go over this Matthew's theme of Jesus the Messiah who brings the kingdom I really think that this can help us to clarify the difference between Matthew and Luke's genealogies this is something that's obviously stumped people for years and there's been all kinds of um, solutions offered and there's a commentator called Artie France who is frankly brilliant um, who I've already said that about Peter Lightheart but he gets it too um, and he basically says let's just think about Matthew's purpose his purpose is to show that Jesus is the heir of the kingdom and so where is the difference between Luke and Matthew's genealogy? It comes straight after, after Solomon. And so the argument is, Matthew is not, quote, is not following Jesus' actual biological lineage. He's following the line of descent to the throne. So in other words, um, he was the heir, and he was the heir, and he was the heir, and the, heir was un, the throne was unoccupied in this time. So when he says, now Jesus has come, he's not saying, and this is his actual biological father, he's saying Jesus is the heir to the throne. Whereas Luke is following a very biological genealogy, which goes all the way back to um, Adam. Whereas Matthew only decides to go back to Abraham. So, but we can spend more time on that when we look at Luke. Um, so yeah, the kingdom of God that's coming. He's the, uh, and Notice the titles that Jesus gets in the Gospel of Matthew. Son of David, Son of God, Son of Man. We looked at the Son of Man last time. Son of Man is is also a royal title, the one who's going to receive the kingdom. The Son of God is what David was called in the Psalms, what Solomon was called. He was called God's Son. Again, a kingly title. And Son of David is a kingly title. So all the titles that Jesus is getting in Matthew's gospel are saying, he's the king. Okay, this is another big theme. Now, when we talk about Luke, I think I will talk about the distinction here For Luke, I think, Jesus is really focusing on the new Israel, the Israel unlike the one that was. For Matthew, I think, he's much more thinking about the true Israel that Jesus is drawing out of the false. So if you read through the book of Kings, for instance, you find that Israel has gone astray And Elijah is told, I've kept 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Elijah draws the true Israel out from the false. And they start this new community within Israel. I think this is much more Matthew's emphasis. He's coming to restore true Israel. Now, uh, as it says on the handout, it's believed by scholars that Matthew was written as a defense of Christianity against its critics. So Jews were saying, what is this new heretical sect that's emerged? And Matthew's kind of writing his gospel to say, we're not the ones who have departed from our heritage as Jews. We're not the ones who have gone off the track. We're not the ones who are abandoning the scriptures. You are by rejecting the Messiah. And so kind of Matthew is writing his gospel as a defense of the authenticity of Christianity as true Judaism. So I think that Matthew really makes that um, theme clear throughout his gospel um, he talks about that um, Israel within Israel and the way that Jesus interacts with his followers. He comes as Israel's long-awaited king. You, know, you see that right from the beginning. And his, um, well, we talked about this last time, didn't we? The fact that uh, he says to his, his uh, disciples, don't go to the Gentiles. I'm only sending you to the lost sheep of Israel. And when the Syrophoenician woman says, you know, can you help me? He says, no, I'm only called to Israel. He's drawing out the true Israel and he's provoking the false, unfaithful Israel to kind of show their unfaithfulness on their sleeve. You know, respond to me, in other words, is what Jesus is saying. So he comes as Israel's long-awaited king, and his ministry is kind of geared towards his soon-to-come enthronement. Now, we don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty of this, and we, you know, feel free to argue with me on this, but I think there's a reason why Jesus keeps saying to his disciples things like, you will not finish passing through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes in glory. Or this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus is kind of constantly saying, I'm about to be made glorious and I will show myself to Israel. That there is something coming soon. That enthronement is on the way. And so while Jesus is uh, drawing out true Israel, we also see that he's making a distinction with false Israel unfaithful Israel and the phrase that he often uses is this generation it's kind of like he's saying um, Israel look at what you've become so I'm just gonna um, I've got all the references here it might be no that's too small to see isn't it okay well there's um, six occasions throughout Matthew's gospel where he makes a really pointed Jesus makes a pointed critique of Israel by saying this evil generation or this generation or uh, all these things will come upon this generation. And when you get to that last section of Matthew from chapters three to 25, and he 's really just going hard on Jerusalem, uh, in 23, he says, "All these things will come to pass on this generation." And he says the same kind of thing in 24. So he's judging the false, unbelieving Israel. And the really interesting thing that Matthew does is, when the true Israel is restored, the nations are going to flow in. Which is interesting because it's not something that we see throughout the earlier chapters, but as the later you get through, the more Jesus is kind of coming to a head in his ministry, the more the attention starts to turn to the Gentiles. So, uh, you think about it. A Syrophoenician woman comes and says, can you do this for me? And Jesus says, no, I'm only sent to Israel. But then the Great Commission go into all the nations and baptize them making disciples from them so now it's kind of turned to look outside the borders of Israel go out there now last time we looked at Isaiah 49 could we just turn there again I won't make you read it this time Henny don't worry mate so Isaiah 49 I said last time we were going to look at this a bit when we looked at Matthew It says um, in Isaiah 49, in verse 3, He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent all my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength he says is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob to bring back those of Israel I have kept and I will make you a light for the Gentiles the ends of the earth uh, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth notice there you are my servant who's the servant identified as in in Isaiah 49 specifically the servant is called look at verse 3 Israel you are my servant Israel okay so who's the servant Israel Verse five this is what the job of the servant is to do to bring Jacob back and to gather Israel to himself so Israel is called to gather Israel to himself And then in verse 6, to restore those among Israel who God has kept to make them a light for the Gentiles. It's like what I said earlier, what is going on here? Turn on the lights, look what's going on in the chamber. Jesus is the true Israel. That's what Matthew's shown to us in the first few chapters. He is the one who fulfills that story. And now he comes to Israel to gather those whom God has kept for himself to restore them to make them a light for the Gentiles and so very naturally throughout the story of Matthew we see that this kind of these verses unfolding we see the true Israel identified we see him sent to Israel we see him gathering those whom God has kept and lastly we see them going to the Gentiles so I I realize that's uh, kind of a whistle stop tour um (sighs) oh okay this is one last thing, which I, I only put on here as if we have time to talk about. But I, So I have to go back a little bit. Within the context of what Jesus is saying about the false Israel being judged, about his enthronement, about the Son of Man coming, just just tell me very quickly to the, the trial scene in, at the end of Matthew. I think it's Matthew 26, um, when Jesus is on trial just before he gets um, put to death. Okay, so in Matthew 26, verse 62, Jesus is on trial just before he gets crucified, and it says this, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Now, I just kind of want to take a point to, it's kind of a reference back to last week, that Daniel 7 usage, the fact that Jesus is saying that he's about to be enthroned, even in his crucifixion. Jesus is not saying to the high priest, And from now on, you'll look out your window and you'll see me coming on the clouds. He says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. In other words, Jesus is saying, now, as I face you, you know, it's like what Elijah said to um, King Ahab, you troubler of Israel, you who are supposed to be in charge, as I face you, and as you put me to death, God will vindicate me, and from now on, you will see my vindication. He's not saying look out the window and look for me. He's saying you are gonna see the true Israel restored before your eyes. So, as I say, I was only gonna gather if we had time and it turns out we did. So let's do a quick recap um, and any questions if there are any. So we spent some time in the introductory chapters of Matthew. We've seen how he frames his story with the story of Israel. We looked at some of the basic structures of the book, that kind of those five discourses, and we saw a proposed macro structure from Peter Lighthart. We explored that prominent theme in Matthew of the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king, bringing the kingdom. And lastly, we saw the way that Matthew frames Jesus as drawing out the true Israel to himself to fulfill that Isaiah 49 uh, reference. So. I know it's been really hot, and I feel really sweaty and tired, but uh, I hope we've enjoyed that. If there are any questions, do feel free to blurt them out. Joseph, would you pray for us?